We are back. We're speaking with Jim DiGenio about his screenplay for the documentary JFK Revisited. Well, Jim, there's so many witnesses, both in Parkland and at autopsy, testifying to the fact that, referring to the right side of the brain where the injury was, most of it was missing. It's like he's missing two-thirds of half of of that part of the brain. So that that number is very suspect. There's about 12 or 13 witnesses, 12 or 13 witnesses who say that a large part of Kennedy's brain was gone. What happens, of course, is Jeremy Gunn did his homework, and Jeremy Gunn was the chief counsel. He was an attorney for the ARB. And so he did something that was very smart. And let me explain why it's smart. Before he showed him the pictures, he got him on the record as saying, what kind of film did you use, Kodak Ektachrome? He goes, what kind of a process uh, did you use? Well, we use these four-by-six holders which you could go ahead and shoot on either side of the film. And you take one shot, okay, you take another, you take it down, and you put another one in. And he goes, do you remember anything about the cerebellum? And he says, it was blasted. The cerebellum is the part of the brain that is right below the main two lobes of the brain, and it differs in coloration. i got to stop you right there. What you just said is very interesting to me because I just watched the documentary again last night. I don't think you included that in the one I saw about the, about the cerebellum being blasted because the photos that are in the public record show the cerebellum to be intact. And Millie right. Crater, who you mentioned recently, made a point to, to me recently that, uh, you know, that supplemental brain autopsy does not mention cerebellar damage. And yet eight doctors, including the neurosurgeon, at Parkland looked and, and could distinctly say there was cerebellar damage. And as you were pointing out, cerebellum, cerebrum, tissues are quite different. You're not going to make that mistake looking at the anatomy of the brain. So the fact that there's no damage to it is highly suspicious. Right. So then, once he was on the record, and this is why this was so smart, because we have a very serious problem in the JFK case, is that people adjust their testimony once they see the evidence, okay? <laughs> you know, Gunn got him before he saw the pictures. So once he walks him into the room and shows him the pictures, Stringer is very surprised. And G- Jeremy Gunn says, what kind of film do you think this is? And according to Doug Horn, Stringer walked right up onto the holder of the film and started looking at it, very energized, very curious. And he says, I think it's ANSCO. And Jeremy Gunn says something like, didn't you say use Kodak Ektachrome? And he goes, yeah. And, but you think this is ANSCO? Yeah, I think this is ANSCO. It's not Kodak Ektachrome. And then he said, you see these numbers at the bottom here? And he goes, yeah. He says, this means this was a press pack technique. I didn't use a press pack technique. In a press pack, the, the, the film is numbered so that every picture that you process has a number to it in sequence. And he says, that's not the process you described. And he goes, no, it's not. And then Jeremy Gunn says, didn't you say the cerebellum was blasted? And he goes, yeah. Does that cerebellum look blasted to you? And he said, no. <laughs> no, this, this, is, this is a big deal. This is a big deal. That right. just does you're, not you're add not up. kidding. And so Jeremy Gunn asked him, are you ready to deny that you took these pictures? 
And he goes, if that's ANSCO film, I didn't take these pictures. See, the question number one is, of CE399, is who planted the bullet? Question number two now becomes, who took these brain pictures? And why did somebody else have to take pictures? Okay? And so we have Gary in the film, Gary Aguilar, when we asked him that question. And he said, it's clearly suggested that somehow there was too much damage in those pictures to be just one bullet. It betrayed, and so somebody had to take another set of pictures. And, and by, by the way, we could have gone so far with just this stringer thing because it's utterly so fascinating what the things that this guy said. I have to ask you, there, there's also some question as to whether the brain that's in those photographs was a brain that was in a living body a few days before that. The brain apparently looks as right. though it's been fixed in formalin for some time, which would, which would make no sense. It couldn't have been that way. Right. You're, you're, you're exactly correct. That's another important point that we talked about. How long was that brain fixed? Why don't you go ahead and describe to your audience what that means? Well, the, after a brain's been set in formalin, there's, it just it undergoes some color changes, and it just it looks like it's been preserved. Whereas, you know, when it's just fresh out of the body, it looks it's still got blood in it. It's pink, and it just it looks different. Right. Cyril Wecht explains in the film the reason that you fix a brain and you you stick it in formaldehyde is because you want to do what they call serial sections. Yes. Okay. And what that means is one of two ways. You either cut the brain like you would a pie, or you cut the brain in what they call a bread loaf technique, which is just straight cuts all the way through. Now, the reason you do that, for any forensic pathologist to do that, is that you want to trace the trajectory of the bullets that struck the brain. And you can't do that unless you fix the brain first, then slice it open. And the formalin fixes it to you so that you can do that. It firms up the tissue. Whereas when it's fresh tissue, it's, it's too, it's just all over the place. You can't do that. Right. Okay, now one of the most amazing things about the Kennedy assassination, and, I, and I'm really, I really mean this, I'm not overstating the case at all, is that there was no serial sectioning. There, there is no trace in the official records. You know this because you've seen the supplementary autopsy. There was no serial sectioning according to that record. That's incredible. It's baffling. Here you have the President of the United States gets his head blown off at high noon in a city street. You've got pictures. You've got films of him getting his head blown off. And so that's clearly the cause of death. But there's no sectioning of the brain to find out exactly what the trajectory was through the skull. That is utterly incredible. It is. If you hypothesize that the fatal, there were actually two fatal blows to the head, which personally I believe, then well, you'd, the last thing you want is serial sectioning to show that. So you, you'd like, you, you'd like okay. that evidence to never, never emerge. See, and this is, this is the conclusion that I believe that you have to come to, that they did not do serial sectioning they did not preserve the actual brain because they knew the result that they were going to get was going to suggest a conspiracy. Okay? I, I really do believe, I don't think I'm overstating it at all. I don't think you are. No. I would agree with you. It's, it's, very, it's very likely. I want to talk about John Newman, Jeff Morley, David Talbot in, in a second. But before I do that, I wanted to have you just address the fact that there was one doctor present 
at the emergency room. He was also present at the autopsy. He is JFK's personal physician, Admiral George Berkeley, and he was not asked to talk to the Warren Commission. This is another thing that I decided to address after my consultation, and Millie Craner did an article about this. Yes. I think it was something called, like, the absent physician or something like that. Yeah. Okay. Now, this is very, very, very interesting. George Berkeley was Kennedy's personal physician. He was in Dallas that day. He was at Parkland Hospital that day, which was the place that they brought Kennedy to after he was hit for emergency room treatment. Berkeley was there, all right? Now, Berkeley then goes back on Air Force One, okay, and he is at the Bethesda Medical Center that night, the morgue where the autopsy is actually conducted. And according to more than one witness, okay, he had an active role, okay, in the autopsy. Now, could there have been a more important witness to the cause of death than George Berkeley, since he was at both locations? You know, and he was there for approximately, at the very least, three and a half hours observing Kennedy, what happened to Kennedy's body. I, I got to jump right in to note also that apparently it was Berkeley that spoke to Malcolm Kilduff, the acting press secretary, when they had to explain yes. what had just happened. And Kilduff, right. addresses the world press, points his finger to the right temple and said it was a matter of a bullet, <laughs> bullet right through the head. And he talked to Berkeley. So it's like right. he's showing what, you know, still, still the controversy. Yes. Would you think that he would be one of the prime witnesses before the Warren Commission? I think any logical thinking person would believe that. First doctor you'd call, I would think. Yeah, right. Well, guess what? Arlen Specter didn't call him. Arlen Specter did not find it convenient, I guess, for George Berkeley to testify before the Warren Commission. Now, one reason I believe that is the case is because his death certificate, which he signed, placed Kennedy's back wound at about the level of what they call T3. Third thoracic vertebra. Which I believe, you can tell me if I'm wrong, which is about five inches below the collar. Yeah. Well, how the hell is that bullet going to come out Kennedy's throat if it's coming in at a downward angle five inches below the collar? To be honest, I think it did. But we, we, we're not going to agree on absolutely everything. Okay. I want you to tell our audience what happened in 1977 with Berkeley because when the House Select Committee fired up, Berkeley sort of came out of his uh, uh, quietude and then had, had something to say. This is very interesting. Dick Sprague was the first counsel for the House Select Committee on Assassinations. And I think anybody who studies the House Select Committee will tell you that Dick Sprague really wanted to do a full bore, completely uncensored investigation as to what the hell happened to President Kennedy. Yes. Okay? I believe, and I think most other people believe, that the results of that investigation would have been much different if Sprague was not forced to leave. Berkeley, through his attorney, a guy named Illig, wrote a letter to Sprague. And in that letter, he said that although he hadn't testified to the Warren Commission, he was eager to testify before the House Select Committee on assassinations, and he said words to the effect that in his way of thinking that the official conclusion cannot be correct. 
I think he said he had information indicating that others besides Oswald must right. have participated. Must have, must have been involved, right. Don't you think that that guy is a kind of important witness? <laughs> and yet, we must tell our audience, sadly, he doesn't ever talk to the House Select Committee. And by the time the AARB comes along, he's deceased. Sprague is removed, I think, two weeks after the receipt of that letter. And so there is no deposition about Berkeley in the House Select Committee. Now, what makes it even worse now is that Berkeley dies, I believe, in 1989. And Jeremy Gunn had the rather ingenious idea, why don't we go ahead and write a letter to Illig, the lawyer, and let's see if he'll give us his files. Okay, we would only have to get permission from Berkeley's surviving daughter, who was the executrix of his estate. Right. So, very good idea. They go ahead and contact her. And she agrees. And they, we actually show this in the film. And then suddenly, about a couple weeks later, she does a 180-degree pirouette, changes her mind, refuses to cooperate. So the last hope of anybody knowing what Berkeley was wanted to tell Richard Sprague was now evaporated. It was gone. He took it to his grave. And we have Horn in the film, who, who worked for the, the ARB, saying if Berkeley was alive and they had been running a criminal investigation, they would have probably granted him immunity to find out what the hell he knew. It's very sad to imagine that what, what we would have could have learned from Admiral Berkeley. We're speaking with Jim DiGenio about the documentary, which he collaborated with Oliver Stone on, titled JFK Revisited, Through the Looking Glass. I want to ask you about Morley and Newman, because these guys, I know your specialty is, is like the strange case of Lee Oswald. You wrote about what, what he was doing in New Orleans and, and the Garrison case. And these guys kind of picked up on the ARB and took a look, and they, and they found out that perhaps the most startling thing in your documentary is how much we know about Oswald's being manipulated now as a result of, of some fresh documents. And, and some fresh probing. Well, let me explain how this happened. See, originally, I was going to have Bill Davey do Oswald in New Orleans. He wrote a book, Let Justice Be Done. Well, Bill got ill. At that time, he couldn't fly out. So I decided to get John Newman and team him with Jeff Morley. And they would do Oswald in New Orleans. And I think it turned out pretty well. I think it turned out pretty well. What happened with the ARB is we found out some very interesting stuff that Jim Garrison didn't know, okay? And I don't think the House Select Committee knew about it either. Okay, one was that a guy named George Joannidis was a liaison to the House Select Committee, came out of semi-retirement for the House Select Committee, and told them that he had nothing to do with the Oswald case in 1963, and therefore he should be able to go ahead and be a liaison. Well, something strange happened. Danny Hardaway and Eddie Lopez, who were working on the Oswald case, mm -hmm. said that once Joannides came in, they began being obstructed. They didn't know why, but that was the case. It turns out that George Joannidis lied to the House Select Committee. Not only was he involved 
in that case. He was the handler for the student directorate uh, revolutionale, or DRE, what we call it in English, is the DRE. And this was the group that had the most active relationship with Oswald. Let me say that again. Joe is was handling the group of Cuban exiles that had the most active relationship with Oswald in New Orleans in the summer of 1963. I put this in my rant. I'm glad you're explaining this better than I did, a little more detail. What does that mean? When Oswald goes to New Orleans, he sets up his one-man Fair Play for Cuba committee. One man. That's all we know is in this group, the Fair Play for Cuba committee. You know, why you would set up a Fair Play for Cuba committee in New Orleans, which outside of Miami probably has the most active Cuban exile group <laughs> that there is, you know, is, is a puzzler in and of itself. But Oswald decides to do this, okay, and he starts leafleting, okay, on Canal Street. He starts leafleting in front of Clay Shaw's International Trademark. He hires people from the unemployment office to help him do this leafleting. He catches a lot of media play. There's cameras and there's pictures. And the newspaper comes out and shoots film of him. Now, at the same time he's doing this, he goes to the leader of the DRE in New Orleans, Carlos Bringier, and he tells him, you know, I can help train some of these guys. I used to be in the Marines. I can even give you a handbook about paramilitary operations. I think he actually gave Bringier a handbook, didn't he? Yeah, I think he actually did, yes. All right, and so, so what happens is that Bringier hears that Oswald is now leafleting for pro Castro stuff, and he walks over to where he's leafleting, and they get in a fight. The only punch that's thrown is by Bringier, hmm. but they both get arrested, and Oswald is found guilty for receiving a punch. Bringier is found <laughs> not guilty for throwing the punch. Okay. <laughs> so, so Oswald ends up in jail. Now, let me ask you a question. If you're a communist and you're in jail, wouldn't you call somebody from the ACLU or something uh-huh. to come in and get you out? Well, what does Oswald do? He calls the FBI. <laughs> and, and they respond. That's the part I love. And they respond. <laughs> and they send the guy down there, and he stays there like for an hour, okay, interviewing Oswald. Now, here is the puzzle. As John Newman said, when the FBI began their inquiry into New Orleans, they collected some of these Fair Play for Cuba Committee flyers that Oswald had been passing out there. He passed them out at several places, including Tulane University. And what was the address on those flyers? It was 544 Camp Street. 544 Camp Street, of course, was where Guy Bannister had his office there. Guy Bannister was a extremely right-wing, some people would call him a, a neo-fascist operator who had ties to the CIA, the FBI, and the American Nazi Party. So here's the question. What the hell is Oswald, who's supposed to be a communist, doing at 544 Camp Street? Well, evidently, the FBI had that question also, because as John Newman says... In the film, they scratched out the address on the messages that were going back to FBI headquarters. Jim, I mentioned this in the rant because I think Harold Weisberg made a big deal out of it. The FBI had Bannister on the horn 
I think the day after Oswald is murdered, they ask him about this other group, the anti-Castro group that was in the office, and somehow the question of, of why they have him on the phone or asking about Oswald somehow gets lost in, in, in the whole matter. <laughs> they didn't ask him about Oswald. Right. Do you believe that? Yes, I do believe Even that. Even though they knew, they knew that Oswald was working out of that building. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. You know? This is just this is just amazing. I, it is amazing. Now the other thing that John brings up in the film, which is very interesting, is that after this whole, I don't know what do you, what do you want to call it, a ballet that Oswald is doing in New Orleans with the pro Castro and anti Castro Cubans and the Fair Play for Cuba committee, he takes this trip to Mexico afterwards. All right, and I think this is the end of September early October. And I think it's October the 9th, just a few days after he gets back from Mexico, that the FBI erases the flash warning on his file, which had been in effect for four years. In other words, when news services about Oswald, it gets a priority treatment. Yes. It goes on a high alert to FBI headquarters. And then if the president is going to the city where that person is, that name gets turned over to the Secret Service Security Index, and that person is checked out. And in all probability, because of what Oswald was doing in New Orleans, and because of him visiting, allegedly visiting the Cuban and the Soviet embassies down in Mexico City, it's very likely he would have been removed from the route for security reasons. In fact, you want to hear something really nutty? Of course I do. (laughs) (laughs) This was never discovered until the ARB. Can you believe this? Two investigations, the Warren Commission and the House Select Committee, and we don't discover it until the 90s. This shows you just the kind of inquiries that have been had. I mean, to me, that is a very important piece of information. Absolutely. In the, the rant that I made, I, I wasn't sure that the listeners were quite ready to, to go where I was pointing out, but I just said it's pretty clear with all of the evidence in your documentary and elsewhere, books and elsewhere, that Lee Harvey Oswald was a, a low-level government agent. It's hard to avoid that conclusion. I really have a hard time believing that you can explain it in another way. And I think for anybody to deny that today, I I just don't think it's a sustainable opinion in this day and age. This idea that somehow he was this uh, aimless sociopath, you know, that's okay for Stephen King novels. (laughs) It's it's not okay for the real world. That's not what Oswald was. Jim, we've, we've been eating up a tremendous amount of time, and it's all fascinating stuff. I, I want you to come back, if you will, in March, and, and when you talk about the four-hour version of this, because there's a lot more detail that uh, we didn't even touch on. But before we leave the topic, I wanted to, I wanted to get on a high note, which, which was the fact that the documentary more or less ends looking at how JFK's legacy on civil rights issue really did set the ball in motion. Johnson, I guess, wanted to out Kennedy Kennedy and got the Civil Rights Act passed. But a lot of stuff started under JFK. And the footage you show of Nick Katzenbach, a- acting attorney general, down in, down in the South, confronting George Wallace, who's not going to let black people enter the university. I mean, to me, I, I, it just it showed, to my mind, uh, we, we have come a long way in, in, in 60 years. 
segregationists were mainstream. The thing is, Eisenhower had eight years to do something like that, and he didn't do it. You know, Kennedy did it in his third year in office, and he did it not just there, but in 1962 at the University of Mississippi. Those were the two last public universities that would not let black Americans in. And Kennedy had to bring out the military in both those cases to force the governors to let black Americans into their university. And that night, when after the face-off with George Wallace, Kennedy went on national television and gave what many people, not just me, believed to be the greatest speech on civil rights since Abraham Lincoln. And we have some of it in the film. And there is a documentary that exists showing how that went down with George Wallace and actually nationalizing the Alabama National Guard while Wallace is standing there in the steps. I don't remember the name of it, but, I, but it's certainly worth, uh, worth seeing. It's called Crisis. Okay. Kennedy let them film inside the White House, and they also filmed at the University of Alabama. And that's how that was put together. It's a very good documentary. Another thing, I, I, I'm trying to wrap this up, but there's so many questions I, I, I still have. Uh, David Talbot makes a wonderful appearance in your documentary. We had him on the show many times. He's a great guest. He suggested that the Kennedy family sent a message to the, to the Soviets saying that they knew that this was not what it was being portrayed as. And Talbot suggests in, in the documentary that, well, Bobby Kennedy would know this from Ken O'Donnell and Dave Powers. They were sitting, you know, in the car right behind JFK, and they suspected—they believed there were shots from two directions. So Bobby would have known right away. That's correct. That's correct. And that's how he got the information. And then him and Jackie sent that letter to the Kremlin, you know, saying about, I think, a week after, you know, we know that even if Oswald did it, he was only a front man for a large right-wing domestic conspiracy. You know, Johnson will not be able to continue the attempt that they taunt that my brother was, okay? But I will resign from attorney general, I will run for public office, then I will run for president, and we will be able to continue this at that time. Well, everything came true except the last step, because we know what happened to Bobby Kennedy once it looked like he was going to be president. Yes, we do. I think we should probably end it here, but I want you to come back, if you will, and talk about this at greater length. Uh, this has been very, very interesting. Uh, we should remind our listeners that you are the screenplay writer for the documentary, JFK, Revisited Through the Looking Glass, and there'll be a four-hour version of it in, in March. Right. So uh, that would be a good time to, to return then. Absolutely, if you would. And thank you for all you're doing. Thank you. Have a good night. Bye-bye. We appreciate James DiGino taking the time to speak with us. He's a busy guy of late. I'm glad for that. His website, kennedysandking.com, is worth your while, dear listener. If you have not yet done so, we recommend that you do check out JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. We very much look forward to talking more on this same topic. And on next week's program... Our usual fare.